Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Join me in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. I hope that you have been keeping up with the uh, Revelation study, at least up through the, the first seven letters to the seven churches. I feel quite certain that's as far as we will go in this current uh, series. And uh, in Revelation, the first couple of chapters, we find seven letters written to seven specific churches with seven specific uh, re- revelations to them about themselves and about both mm, Jesus's uh, perspective and his right judgment upon them, and then certain rewards that he promises for those who will overcome and repent and listen. And uh, and Revelation is a very important book in understanding. Uh, our current day as well, and understanding the expectations that God has for us, and uh, and how we are to live in our in our current age. So this this uh, Jesus tells us in chapter one, he is walking among the candle stands, the the lamps, and uh, and and as he is walking, he's always viewing and evaluating his church, and the churches are the the candle stands, and uh, and then. He gives these seven letters, and these are circular letters beginning in Ephesus all the way to Laodicea. And if you look in the ancient time, there is this circular pattern, this postal route that, uh, that these letters would have made themselves. Again, because I think it's important, he doesn't just write a letter to the church. He writes a letter to the church for all the churches to read. And I think that's important, too, because he intends and preserves that, those letters for us to be able to read as well. So we are at letter number six today. To the church at Philadelphia, write, this is verse seven, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, and that's not the first time that we read about the synagogue of Satan to these, in these letters to the churches, who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you." Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Neither shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's important as we are reading someone else's letter to understand the context of what the writer is trying to uh, to get across. 
And so to the church at Philadelphia, Philadelphia is the youngest of all seven cities. Uh, It's a few hundred years old by this time. It was founded as an outpost of the, uh, the Greek empire, pretty much, and it was uh, an outlier, um, and its primary purpose in existing was to be a missionary outpost for Hellenism. Now, what I mean by that is, you know, the, the Greeks had this understanding that one of the things that they wanted to do was not necessarily conquer the world, but to give the world Greek culture. They wanted the world to speak Greek, to have politics like the Greeks, to dress like the Greeks, to have democracy like the Greeks, to, to function and have creativity and to be able to think for themselves and have freedom for the whole world. And so, Greek, especially Alexander the Great uh, was a huge proponent of this, took over lands just to give them his culture. And Philadelphia was one of these places that had been founded in the, uh, in the 200s B.C. And it was founded by a man named Attalus II, whose father, Attalus the, I, had, uh, had founded Philadelphia. Uh, it didn't really have its proper name until Attalus III, I mean uh, the second. Uh, his name actually was Attalus Philadelphus which means brotherly love. Now, this guy is phenomenal. Uh, I won't go into all of the history. It's super rich how, you know, kings and queens marry into each other all during those days. He's got quite a resume, though, of his own. But whenever his brother was the second born, he took over as the king of Pergamum. Now, Pergamum is the city. We've already talked about Pergamum. We're not going to talk about it anymore. But he's the king of Pergamum. And Attalus II is kind of just biding his time. And his brother was a great king. In fact, he was a king for 38 years. And, and, and Rome, though, didn't care for him that much. And they wanted Attalus II to be the king because he was more loyal to uh, their politics. And so often they would offer him bribes and they would give him armies and they would say, all you have to do is to create a coup and we'll help you take your brother down and you can be the king of Pergamum. But Attalus II absolutely refused this. In fact, there was one time when his brother went off to war and they were attacked at war, supposedly even killed. And in order to preserve the honor, Attalus II became king actually married his brother's wife to preserve that line. It was what you did. And married her for a period of time. And then his brother came in home to Philadelphia and, uh, and, and wasn't dead after all. Now, his brother, Atlas II, has already been the king for a little while and married to his sister-in-law. And so you know what Atlas II did? Took off the crown, handed it back to his brother, stepped back off the stage. And, and this was his undying loyal, loyalty to his brother, which gained him the illustrious, this is all of Pergamum, by the way, the illustrious nickname of Philadelphus. Philadelphus means uh, uh, phileo is love, 
Adelphos, his brother, put those words together, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. But originally his nickname was Philadelphus because he had an undying loyalty and love to his literal brother. Once he became the king of Pergamum, they created an outpost in this outlying region of Asia Minor, and they named it after Adelus II, Philadelphia. And their primary goal was to expand this kind of loyalty, this kind of uh, to, to Greece, not to Rome, and to expand democracy to the rest of the world. Now, Philadelphia also was at a major trade route. It was the trade route from this Asia Minor area, which is modern-day Turkey, all the way to the east. There was this major road that ran all the way into, into the, to the far reaches of China. And what they wanted to use Philadelphia for was to be a center hub before you stepped out into the nether regions who were barbarians. Go through Philadelphia, get a really good healthy dose of Greek culture. And so what they did is they decided to build Philadelphia after Athens. And that became Philadelphia's uh, kind of kind of nomenclature. That's what everybody knew them for was they are little Athens. That's what they began to be known as. So everywhere you went, there were these Greek temples, these Greek cities, I mean, uh, Greek uh, streets, and uh, all of the gods were represented there. Philadelphia was quite a little happening place. It wasn't a, it wasn't a large city, again, is an outpost, but it had everything that Athens had, just really small. They had little fast food restaurants, not large ones. Uh, but they wanted to make sure everybody who lived there understood, ate, slept, drank Greek culture. Now, another thing about Philadelphia is they had a lot of earthquakes there. In fact, these, uh, they would have these tremors, and everybody who lived in Philadelphia would immediately run far, far away because they didn't want these, these marble buildings to collapse on top of them, and they would come back, and all that would be left were just the pillars. In fact, you can go to a lot of places now, and you see the ruins of these Greek cities. What do you, what do you still typically st- still see standing? You, you see the pillars still, still standing there to the sky. Okay, so, so Philadelphia, that's a super quick, unfair history of the city itself, uh, but, but that was, it was kind of the banner flying and waving in proud history to Greece. So beginning in the second part of verse 7, it says, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, shuts no one will open. So this is... Uh, the first letter to any of the churches that does not have a specific throwback to chapter 1 in all of Jesus' illustrious illustration of himself, uh, I should say, uh, in his explanation of who he is. We, talk, we called it his resume there, I believe, uh, several weeks ago. But there's, there's, no, uh, there's no throwback to that here. Now, there is a throwback to the keys. Here he says he has the key of David. In chapter 1, it says he has the keys to death and Hades. So death is personified as a person, and so is Hades. Death and Hades, uh, 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 death's domain, Hades, have doors. But Jesus always has the keys. Now, I want to take just a moment, kind of dispel, not necessarily a rumor, but a really, really bad theology. There, there is this idea that when Jesus died on the cross for those three days that he was in 
um, uh, before the resurrection, that he, we do believe, obviously, he descended into hell, but mostly it's important for us to understand that hell isn't the lake of fire. Hell was a place that all the dead went from all time. It was the, the Sheol in Hebrew, the, the grave in English. And, and so when Jesus died, he really, really did die. So this idea of him going into hell, there's this great cosmic battle where God steps into the fiery pit and starts wrestling Satan for the keys to death and to hell. It's bogus. It doesn't happen. Satan never has keys. I don't know where in the world this idea comes that Satan has ever had any power whatsoever. He is always on a very, very tight uh, authority of God. And he does nothing, says nothing, acts in no way except under the control of God himself. Listen, Satan is not the opposite of God. God has no opposite Satan is the opposite of a good angel. He is a bad angel, and God has complete sovereignty over him. So that Jesus has the keys to death and to hell shouldn't surprise us. He's always had the keys to death and to hell. Uh, he has never relinquished them. There is no battle in hell where Jesus works for three days and finally comes out victorious. It just doesn't happen. It's not in the Scripture. Now, Satan wants you to think that Jesus came to hell. Because that's what he wants you to think. But he's not there either. He is on the earth right now. Roaring like a lion seeking whom he may devour. Now while he is under complete allow access to the kingdom of God in his hands. Now do you want the key to the synagogue or do you want a key to the kingdom? And that's what Jesus is saying is don't sweat the synagogue stuff. You are already have entrance into my kingdom. Your inability to be in the synagogue does not keep you from my presence. What a beautiful thought for these Christians who thought they were truly forfeiting everything spiritual and had a lot, lot of confusion. They were Christians in an outpost city that was trying to bring Greek culture to the east. And I think what God is saying, what Jesus is saying here is at this time, this was the biggest purpose on earth was to bring Greek culture to the rest of the world. But what Jesus is saying is, but I have a higher purpose than that for you. Don't worry about trying to influence the synagogue. I'm going to use you to change the world. All right, so he is reminding the church at Philadelphia that he was, is holy and true, the holy one and the true one. So these describe him in his essence, in his very being. Psalm 34, 4 says the same thing. For the word of the Lord is right, and what he says is true. What Jesus is saying here is, and again, I don't mean to take anything away from Jesus himself, because we know that this is true. But for them, what they are hearing is that Jesus here is declaring that he is God himself. Jesus isn't just the Messiah. He is Yahweh, the Holy One, the True One. Now, there's two words and two ways that those words can be used in Greek. There is the, the uh, idea of true being true versus uh, false. And there is also true versus fake. And the word that is used here is Jesus is saying true versus fake fake. 
not false. He's not just trying to convince them that he is. He's trying to convince them that he is the only one like himself. That all of these other things, that, that uh, all these idols, all these temples, all this pressure is absolutely bogus. So it's it's pretty good pretty good resume right here. Uh, so he who has the key of David again talking about the heavenly realm, not just the earthly one. Who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Now again, Jesus is the keeper of all keys. He's the keeper of death and hell, chapter one, and now he's the keeper of the kingdom keys. There's not a key that opens any door. That Jesus does not possess. Now I'm going to come. We're going to come to a little bit of a of a crossroad here, and I want to take just a moment and go over to Isaiah chapter 22. You don't necessarily have to turn there, but I'm going to read it just so because we're here. It's the reason why Jesus says this is from Isaiah 22. All right, verse 15 says, "Thus says the Lord God of hosts: Come, go to this steward to Shebna." You know that if you don't say it now because it'll take up too much time, but that's a really fun name to say, Shebna. Everybody, I just heard it, Shebna, Shebna. You just wanted to test it, didn't you? I get it. It's okay. It's all right. We're safe. Who is over the household. Now, Shebna is one of the royal stewards of King Hezekiah, okay? <clears throat> Who is over the household and say to him, what have you to do here and whom? <clears throat> have you here that you have cut out the tomb for yourself, who cut out a tomb on the height and carved a dwelling for yourself in the rock? Shebna had, had uh, what do they say, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's what happened to Shebna. Pride went crazy, and he started treating himself as if he were the king. He started acting. He wanted the applause of people, and he wanted the respect of all the citizens of the kingdom. And he actually, well, we won't get into the whole story because I don't have time, but he started acting like he was the king to the citizens. Uh, Behold, this is verse 17, behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently. In Hebrew, it says, I will will make you like a ball and throw you into the field. And I'll whip you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. Boy, how in the world would you like that on your resume? I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. And in that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, And I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. And he shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. It's obvious what is happening is Shebna, who through her, his pride had brought himself to his ruin, 
was being replaced by another whom Hezekiah would give the keys to the kingdom. One would be an absolute reject hurled into the abyss for all eternity, and there you will die. But to this one, Eliakim, Eliakim means God is rising. I will give the keys to the kingdom, and no one will shut and no one will open but him. He will decide what comes in and what comes out. Now, obviously, this is a prophecy. It really happened, but it's prophetically speaking of Jesus, whom the Father has given the keys to the kingdom. And he also has said he's opening a door no one will shut and shutting doors that no one will open. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. Here in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is the holy and true one who has the power to execute admittance into the kingdom, not of Jerusalem, but of God himself. And this is why it is so important when he tells Peter, who represents the church, not the Pope, when he says to Peter, I'm giving you the ability to use the keys as you see fit. And what you say will be bound on earth, it'll be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, he doesn't relinquish keys. He shares the authority of that with the church because we are his bride. And with that comes a level of trust. Now, he is the sovereign ruler of all things. And everything is within his kingdom. Amen? Everything is within the kingdom of God. Is there any area of any part of life, including your thoughts, that God is not in? Old Testament, New Testament continually tells us you cannot move away from God's authority. It is not possible. So what is there to fear? If God is going to do what God is going to do, if whatever he binds will be bound, whatever he shuts will be shut, whatever he enters be entered, why would we be afraid of anything unless we're walking in opposition to his keys and to his authority? Whatever it may be, whatever fear you may have, whether it's relational, financial, whether it's some societal issue, whatever it might be, if it's a disease or if it's a virus, or why would we be afraid? Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't lose our common sense, but I am saying that we want to trust in Jehovah God. He still has the keys. We're not waiting for some war to be had. Now, that's going to be really important as we continue to work through this letter. I just wonder, though, when it comes to the church today, people in the church, are are we less convinced that God is sovereign? I mean, all we got to do is do what he says and honor his name with our lives. If that's the case, then whatever door he opens, we want to walk through. Whatever door he closes, we want to quickly Close. So many times when God says no, he closes the door, he knows best. We keep pounding on the door and lamenting. Or we want a door to open that God says, no, it's not good for you. Or we want a door closed and we don't want to go through that. We give some excuse or some justification for not wanting to obey. He's either sovereign or he's not sovereign. He's either in control or he's not. He either knows you or he doesn't know you. 
So Jesus is expressing his power and authority to admit and exclude. Verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door. Now listen, if it's an open door and no one can shut it, this isn't just a revelation that a door is open. This is a command of purpose and direction. There's a door open before you. You don't have to turn around and say, would you want me to walk through it? Well, it's open. Every other door around you is shut. I know you have but little power. That's not a great translation there. Uh, That's not in comparison. This seems like it's a comparison to weakness. It's not. They're a small congregation. But being small, the, the word is micro in Greek. You might have heard that before. It means little. But it doesn't mean It doesn't mean weak. It just means little. So they're little. They're strong. They got little strength. They got little strength. I mean, they got got strength in little boxes. And you've kept my word. You've not denied my name. So so it's funny to me that the, the city of Philadelphia was to be a missionary outpost for Greek. But God is using the city of Philadelphia and giving them an open door to the rest of the world to be the missionary outpost of the gospel. I'm giving you the open door. This is the open door of evangelism. Paul talks about this a lot. 1 Corinthians 16, 9. He, he, he asks the church to pray for a great and effective door set before me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, it says, He came to Troas, and God had set an effective door before me. Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, he tells the church there, again, asking him to pray for an open door. And all of these are always in regard to effective evangelizing and sharing the, the name of Jesus wherever they go. And so here in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is telling the church, hey, I've given you an open door. What does that mean? Do we, are there times when we don't have an open door? We say, well, a person can't come to faith unless the Holy Spirit, you know, draws them. I think what the Lord is saying to the church is, I'm drawing them. What difference does it make if the Lord is drawing if the church doesn't walk through the door? I'll also say you can't pray that God would draw people to repentance and not be willing to walk through the door. And this is all about missionary work, whether it's going to China or whether it's going to Africa or whether it's going to South America or whether it's going to your next door neighbor. I've set before you an open door. Who needs the door to be open? Does the person walking through the door need to be open? Or do the people receiving the message from those coming through the door need the door to be open? I mean, there is some responsibility on the side of the hearer. But who has the greater responsibility? The goer. How, how are they going to hear if there's not a preacher? 
What if the rest of the world right now would say yes to Jesus, but we're too busy arguing over things that don't matter about eternity? How cold it is in here, or how hot it is in here, or how whatever it is in here, or all the things that we're distracted about in our everyday life. Meanwhile, the rest of the world is going to hell with an open door, but the church is sitting on its hands. Trying to get the rest of the world to act like the Greek. The rest of the world needs to act like they're American. So we go around the world and we're propagating all of our culture, but not the gospel. You can't, there's, it's getting harder and harder to find the gospel in the churches. God help us. Listen, you got you to use his kingdom to reveal his kingdom. What does that mean? You can't just start spouting off truths. You've got to use his kingdom to reveal his kingdom. What is his kingdom? His kingdom is already here. Faith, hope, love, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, kindness, self-control. The gifts of the Spirit that God gives us that we continually neglect, talk ourselves out of, excuse away. Waiting for big churches to do it. Meanwhile, little old, small in number, big in power, Philadelphias are getting it done. But you know what? You don't need to be a big church to be obedient. You don't need to be a big church to have a lot of power when you're empowered by the Holy Spirit. All you need is to walk through the door. One of the most striking words in this entire passage starts in in verse 8. I mean, not the very first word, but I know your works. What's the next word? I know your works. Behold, see, pay attention. That's the biggest problem I think that we have as Christians. We're not seeing the open door. We're seeing our next breakthrough, our next step up, our next fun moment, our next this, our next that. But we're not looking as Christians. We're not even looking for the open door. And Jesus is telling them here, the first step is you got to pay attention. See, there are people all around you that God has given you an open door to. These are not, these are not we call them divine appointments. No, they're just simple opportunities. They're around us every day. Maybe divine appointments, but every appointment can be a divine appointment. Every moment can be a divine appointment. Because God is constantly opening doors, but first you've got to see. Notice, pay attention, behold, conversations, look for opportunities to bring Jesus up. We talk ourselves out of sharing. Somebody else will. We don't want to get too personal. We don't want to get too serious. What if they say something I don't know how to answer? What if they say something I don't agree with? What if they ask a question? What if they this? What if they that? What if they, you know what? I'm just, going to, I'm just going to close the door. You can't close the door. The Lord opens doors. 
That doesn't absolve you from your responsibility. The door is open. You either walk through it or you're disobedient. Some people are going, so this is uh, something that, I don't mean this to sound harsh, but they, they were so jilted, disappointed that they couldn't go to the synagogue every week. What do we do? We can't go, the Jews won't let us go to the synagogue anymore. Some people are satisfied with just going to the synagogue every week. Jesus opens a whole lot more than the synagogue. It says you have kept my word. This is where their strength comes from. You have kept my word and you've not denied my name. That's the word of God and the character of Jesus. Those things working together. The truth of God and the life of Jesus working in tandem together. They believe God. They walk like him. They hear the truth. They apply the truth. That's what he's talking about here. They do the right thing for the right reasons and the right person gets the glory and the credit and that's what empowers them to be able to notice and to see what's going on around them. Sometimes, you know, he says, I believe that sometimes we draw strength from the wrong things. Here they're drawing strength from obeying. Obeying what they know and living it out. That's where they gain their strength. But let me ask you, where do we gain our strength? Budgets? Large numbers? Where are you have to exercise faith? Where are you having to pray, God, if you'll, if, you'll give it, if you'll give me this opportunity, I will walk through the door. Where are you having to pray that in conversation? Where are you having to pray that in your giving, in your stewardship? Where are you having to pray to really trust the Lord? Where do you really need God? Where do you really need him? Where would you be completely lost without him? Now, we, could, we, we go to church because we should. We don't worship like we're desperate for his presence. We sure don't read the Bible like we're desperate for his presence. Where we're trying to strategize for his kingdom's sake. No, we just write checks and go to church. Man, you look around the rest of the world, if you want to compare Christianity to the rest of the world, don't compare American Christianity to it because it looks different here than it does everywhere else in the world where you see people weeping over their sin, where you see them torn apart because of their love for their neighbors, where you see them risking walking at night to be able to share the gospel so that they don't get caught and thrown in prison. You know, in China, when you ask a, a pastor where they, go to, where they went to seminary, they will tell you which prison they were in. And when they say, how long did you go to seminary? They mean, how long were you in prison? Because that's where you learn the most about God. There are no seminaries in China. You learn about God by spending time with him. He teaches you. No, we just want to turn the radio on or turn on our podcast and let somebody else tell us what to think. 
kept my word and not denied my name. Well, man. Verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews that are not but lie. Make them come bow down before your feet and they will learn I've loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance and I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Make those of the synagogue of Satan. Now, we've heard this before and so it's the same, same answer. Uh, they, they were just simply Jews. They weren't necessarily terrible people but they were just devout Jews and here's what a Jew looks like and here's what a Jew believes and what Jesus is saying is who who received the prophecies of the Messiah the Jews and out of Judah came the lion of the tribe of Judah Jesus himself and when Jesus declared his Messiahship to the world it was the Jews who said no we don't believe it but it was the Jews that should have said yes and so if there is a person who calls themselves a Jew and rejects Jesus, they are the synagogue of Satan and they are liars. Don't call yourself a Jew if you reject the Messiah. That's what Jesus is saying. Well, they act like they know me. They, they don't know me. They are, they are not another option. They are not good religious people. They're the synagogue of Satan. They're liars. Why would you try to be a part of that? I'm going to make them come. You, you keep holding fast what you've got, and one of these days you're going to see those Jews bowing at your feet. Now, that makes me kind of uncomfortable, so I dug into that a little bit. And over and over and over in Scripture, Paul talks about this a lot, people bowing low and worshiping God, but in the presence of the, of the believers. So that's all. He's not saying you're not going to worship them. Some translations even say and worship at your feet like they're worshiping the person. No, no, no. They're worshiping Jesus. And because they see Jesus in you, that's the thing that they're going to know that Jesus loved them. It's funny. How you have in the Old Testament Gentiles bowing down to Judaism everywhere the Jews went. But in the New Testament, you have the Jews bowing down to Gentiles because they received the Messiah. And all of a sudden you find out the Jews, the Jews aren't the people of God. The Jews are the descendants of Judah. The people of God are descendants of Abraham by faith. We have been grafted in to that. We are the people of God. All right, I'm going to hurry. He says, because of your faithful endurance, you've obeyed and be faithfully endured. I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world. Now, very quickly, because there's a couple things here that I really want to get to. and Because uh, it'll, it'll pay off next week. Uh, but most theologians uh, agree that what Jesus is talking about here is a tribulation time, a time that is to come, a, a difficult 
And, and the rest of Revelation, which we're not going to get to, really describes in detail what a, a seven-year tribulation is going to look like. And what God, what Jesus is promising here is because of your faithfulness, I'm going to be faithful to you through that period of time, and I'm going to keep you from the hour. That word from is the Greek word ek, which actually means out of. And so it makes sense that God would, this is where a lot of times uh, the rapture idea comes from, is that God's going to pick the church up and set it out of the struggle. But it seems more likely that what God is going to do is to put his hand of covering over them and to keep them protected during that time. Uh, And so just like he did with the children of Israel when Israel was leaving Egypt with the plagues, he protected his people, but he didn't necessarily like remove them out permanently, but he did eliminate them out of the trial itself. But he didn't remove them from Israel. If he were going to do that, he might as well just take them from Israel and uh, and set them in the or Egypt and set them in the Promised Land. But there is a time coming where there's going to be a trial, not just in Philadelphia. There's going to be a difficult worldwide calamity that's going to last, and it's going to the whole world will experience it. And God's people will be protected, regardless. This isn't going to be a debate on the rapture or not. I don't even know what I think about that. Be honest. Depends on where I'm reading at the time. When I see it, I see it, and when I don't, I don't. It doesn't matter. The point of this passage is God protects His people always, especially for those that are faithful to Him. Now, there is, a, there is a, a very great likelihood, and I've not spoken about it until today, that all of the seven letters were written, seven literal letters to seven specific churches in Asia Minor in a circular uh, postal route. While that is absolutely true, I'm certain of that, There's also a likelihood that there's another play that he's writing about the church of all generations. Let me explain. The church age began with the church at Ephesus. Started somewhere in the mid-30s AD and it moves itself all the way up into about 100 AD at the writing of this. So the, the Ephesian church is the first 70 years of the church age. This was the evangelization of the world. In fact, there are several times when Paul writes that the whole earth had learned about the gospel of Jesus Christ during that time. Everywhere you looked, you saw people being sent into the uttermost parts of the world to declare the gospel to them. During those first years, there was churches multiplying rapidly, thousands and thousands, and the influence was growing incrementally during that time, up until the time of severe persecution, which really started in the mid-50s, but just right around A.D. 100, you started seeing the Roman Colosseum is filled with, with lions and you've seen you know, pikes with Christians hanging on them and Nero's hanging gardens where they would strip humans, Christians of their skin and light them on fire and that was the light of his night. Listening to them, anguish brought him joy. Just crazy things that was going on to the church during the next 300 years of persecution. 
when Constantine, and this was this would be the church of Smyrna, which I told you before is embalm, uh, myrrh is where that word comes from. It's embalming fluid, and during that period of time, it is a uh, uh, a great time of persecution. And if you go back and read all the things that Jesus said to Smyrna, it was pretty much, "Hang on, it's going to keep getting worse." but you just keep persevering, and it certainly did over and over. Until Constantine, around 312, declared that Christianity was going to be the religion of the Roman Empire. Yes, no more persecution. And you had this marrying of, and this is uh, probably, anyway, uh, the, the, the worst uh, is, is Pergamum, the, the letter to uh, Pergamum. This marrying of the church with the government. And, and it all becomes kind of mingled in together. It's during this time that they, the, the, the government started making allowances to Christians. And you didn't have the scripture anymore. The scripture wasn't quoted very often. It was just pretty much Rome says, therefore God says. And they established popes to speak on behalf of God and who had never read the scripture, by the way. And they started worshiping saints and they started worshiping uh, angels. And they, they even uh, invented this idea of purgatory. You know what? Live however you want to live. You just pay the consequences for a little while. And if you have enough money, you can buy your way out of sin. No problem. It's great. Jezebel, Pergamum. Anytime the government and Christianity tries to come together, I'm telling you, that is major, major trouble. And that's where we are, honestly. That's where we are right now. Kind of. Thyatira was next. That begins in 607 when Boniface was the, the pope. And this in history is called the Dark Ages. There was no church. You couldn't tell Christianity from Eastern mysticism. It all was the same thing. No one knew anything. That's when they started selling indulgences. Started inventing ways for people to give extra money for your sin. And if you've got a great, great, great grandparent, maybe in purgatory, you can buy their way out too. Sardis. Sardis would be from 1520 till the mid-1700s. That's what we would call the Reformation. The Reformation is where rather than trying to redeem the church, some of the church just fractured off and created its own thing but left this void. You have the appearance that you're alive, but you are really dead. Which brings us to this age, mid-1700s to probably present day. I don't know. We don't know yet. But it's the modern missionary movement where the Christians, the people of God all over the world become an outpost for the gospel. It's, it's in the mid-1700s when Hudson Taylor finally said, I'll go to China. Those people got to hear the news. And all of the church said, if God wants China to be saved, he'll save them without you. But there was a shift in the 1700s that gave birth to the church at Philadelphia. Next week, we'll talk about what comes next. I'm not sure we're not already in it. But one generation gives birth to the next generation throughout these letters to the churches. 
The next transition to another is brought on by a test to test the whole world. That's how one of the ways we're going to know. And I used to, I grew up hearing about all of that. You, know, you hear about the mark of the beast and you hear about an antichrist and you hear about this one world system and global economy and you see all of the wars and pestilences and you grow up and you're scared to death. And I'm telling you, here we are living in it and I can see it from here. We're being conditioned as a world to accept whatever we're fed. test those who dwell on the earth. Now, this is where I'm going to close. The test is directed not toward the people of God, but toward those who dwell on the earth. This phrase, those who dwell on the earth, is found nine times in the book of Revelation. Nine times. Every time it's in reference to unbelievers, unsaved people. And the reason that that is so important is because there's other places, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, for instance, and there's another place in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, where it tells, says that we do not dwell on the earth. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. So we are not earth dwellers. We're already in the kingdom. People who dwell on the earth are not believers. So this test to those who dwell on the earth is to those who do not trust Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to tell us who are already in the kingdom of God is we need to make sure that we hold fast as Jesus tells us to. Hold fast to what you have. What, what do they have? They have evangelistic opportunity. They have a re reliance upon God. They have faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And he says, and you know, think about that. Evangelism, reliability, or reliance, and faithfulness. That's pretty simple. I mean, that's what, that's what he tells the churches to be. Evangelist, make disciples, rely on his power, and be faithful. Isn't it funny how it's the simple things, not our hierarchy and our structures and our budgets and our plans and our programs and all of our events, all of our numbers, all of our metrics. No, it's just, it's just make disciples, rely on him, and be faithful. This is what pleases Jesus. Hold fast, and I will preserve you through difficulty. But difficulty's coming because I, I have to test the earth dwellers. But if you will persevere, you're going to be a pillar. You're going to be a pillar. And on that pillar, there's going to be three names, the name of God. You go, you go to any of those Greek cities, and you'll see the pillars, and you know, they've got the God's names on them, Right? Oh, I don't want those God's name on my pillar, but he's going to use me as a pillar. And when the earth is shaken, there's going to be things that stand. What's going to stand when the earth is shaken? The pillar. But on the name of that pillar, it's going to be my face with God's name, New Jerusalem, the holy city of God, and whatever new name Jesus has. And we'll stand. But you've got to make disciples. And you've got to rely on his power. And you've got to stay faithful to his open door, not to your convenience and comfort. To the church at Philadelphia, I write, let he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Do not get comfortable with the synagogue. There is a bigger purpose. Don't get comfortable just attending church and being around spiritual things. God has a purpose. God has an open door. And God has an empowerment for every opportunity he gives us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. And 
though it's complicated for us. And we do see that, that not only are we reading about a church in a city, we're also reading our own. For you have written to the church at Connect the letter to the church at Philadelphia. And I pray that we too would hear your word and rightly apply it. I pray that our hearts would be broken and we would learn how to risk and we would learn how to be desperate. Lord, we have come through the age of missionaries and I pray that we're still in it. I pray that you still use us for that. But I am terrified that we've already turned the page to Laodicea. So I pray, Lord, that you would continue to use us in that gap. Use us at work. Use us at school. Use us in our neighborhoods. And use us at church. Lord, may we hold fast to things that we have been given. May we see clearly that you have set before us an open door to to declare your excellencies. Help us to repent. Help us to repent. Give us hearts of repentance. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Will you stand with me, please? You know, I just, I get get excited because of the open door. I can see the open door. And I see the opportunities. I've experienced the empowerment of the Lord and and I know many of you have, and uh, you know all the all the opportunity. I mean, it's just like it's just like he's given us every opportunity, and, and we're our own we're our own problem. And he he tells us, and we read it earlier. I didn't read it just now, but but he says you better hold fast so that you don't for so somebody don't take your crown. And that word crown there is the victor's crown. It's it's the crown of. Of, of the one who wins and he said make sure you don't let somebody take your crown and, and the implication is there is that you can forfeit your crown you can forfeit your victory by not making disciples by not relying on the Holy Spirit by not remaining faithful and living as a earth dweller instead of a dweller in the kingdom of God so this morning, I just want to make sure I don't, we, need to, we need to finalize what kingdom we live in. Because they're in opposition to each other. You can't live in both. So I, I want you to join me that in, in praying that God would give us hearts of repentance. That he would give us a softening that would free us up to enjoy the open door and not see it as a drudgery or something that would create fear and I want church I'd like for us just to pray that God would give us brokenness he'd give us eyes to see ourselves and eyes to see the open door before us Lord we just ask in the stillness of this moment that these words would be more than a song they just be a prayer Lord we do need you I pray that the veil would be off our eyes. I pray that the burden would be off our back. We just pray that, Lord, you would just keep us focused. Um, Help us to focus on the simple things in our own life. Help us to focus on the simple things in our church. And I pray that we would continue to be missionaries as we go throughout our day. 
that trickle-out effect would impact the world around us. For your glory, Lord, and, and not ours. We ask that you would forgive us. Pray that you give us clear eyes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.